Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. Pardon me. I'm froggy this week. Froggy this week. A lot of construction at at my condo complex. And a lot of, I think, mold, mildew, dust, and everything else being bandied about as our complex readies for termite tenting fumigation uh, that starts tomorrow morning. Uh, this could also be just total disgust in my voice over the whole prospect of it, but I don't know. But anyway, welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, the editors, the costume designers, production designers, composers, uh, book authors, uh, sound editors, sound mixers, film editors. We talk to everybody. And speaking of everybody, uh, if you haven't seen it already, check it out. It's on it. You can find it on BehindTheLensOnline.net. My exclusive interview with the beloved, the dear Donald Moat, uh, makeup artist. He received an Academy Award for uh, nomination for his work on Dune. And uh, for your consideration for Emmys, Donald has done, uh, he was head of department doing hair, makeup, and prosthetics on Moon Knight, starring Oscar Isaac, Ethan Hawke. Um, His work is incredible. He has a great philosophy for his approach to makeup uh, and hair. So if you get a chance, check out the interview. Um, It's a lot of fun, and he is a dear, dear man, and I adore him. And it was a joy. Um, After years, we finally got to chat. Of course, next time we're going to chat sitting down and having lunch somewhere. Uh, when he's back in the States after Dune 2. But a bunch of other new interviews are up on BehindTheLensOnline.net as well as out on all the social platforms that have to do with the most adorable, oddly charming, quirky film, Brian and Charles, uh, directed by Jim Archer. It stars David Earl and Chris Hayward. It opens... This Friday. Um, And I am so, I I am in love with the film. It is charming. And we've got some, I've got some really fun interviews with Jim and then with David and Chris that are up and out on all the social platforms as well. Plus a ton of other interviews that are out there. Um, So I wanted to get that out of the way. And a huge, huge, huge thank you. To a wonderful publicist, my, my pal Clint, down under with October Coast, sent me a gifty package. Um, if, you're, if you are on Facebook, if you're on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page right now, um, apparently the Mevo camera is working. Not that I ever really care. But the Mevo camera is allegedly working. Uh, and you can see just some of the horrifically wonderful titles from Wild Eye uh, that Clint sent to me. I'm very excited. Shark, Shark Month, Shark Week is coming, and we've got some Shark shark Apocalypse films here that I'm going to be digging into uh, that I'll get to talk to you about and hopefully talk to the filmmakers uh, when Shark Week and Shark Month rolls around uh, starting in July. But now, as for today's Behind the Lens, we're going global today. First, and he is on the line on hold right now, is director Jonathan uh, Keisger to talk about his film, Peace by Chocolate. It is a true story. It's his narrative film debut. It's a true story, though, uh, based on a Syrian refugee family that went to Canada and had to restart their life uh, and complete with all the angst and anguish that normal families go through, but also immigrants. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful film. Uh, and by the way, there really is chocolate involved because I was sent some of it, and it's actually Syrian chocolate is wonderful. 
Uh, but Jonathan will be on the line in just a minute. And then later in the show, Robert Lieberman is going to be with us, director, cinematographer, producer, Echoes of the Empire, Beyond Genghis Khan. Many of you don't know this. I'm a huge Genghis Khan freak. Uh, my mother was a bigger Genghis Khan freak. So to see this documentary, it is fascinating. Fascinating. Um, so Robert will be joining us later. But right now, I'm going to go ahead and bring on this wonderful man who brings us a film about chocolate. Uh, Jonathan Kaiser. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am thrilled to have you, Jonathan. Any man that makes a film that involves chocolate is okay by me. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is this is such a this is actually a sweet film, and no pun intended there. Um, it the story of a family, immigrants from Syria to Canada, and how they acclimate and the challenges they go through, not just in a new country with, with different languages, but also within the family unit itself. And I think that's something that we don't normally see or hear about when people talk about immigration. And we really see the typical that every family in the world can, can relate to, that father-son angst, Mother, son, fa you know, father and mother. It's a dynamic that is so common and universal. But it's something that's never discussed in, in as much as immigration has been at the forefront the past few years. And we see it play out here. Um, but it's just a wonderful film. So I'm curious, how did you find out about the family, about the, the Haddad family? The film, it, it's about the Haddad family. They were preeminent chocolatiers in Syria uh, when they were uprooted because of the wars. And uh, Justin Trudeau was, you know, he said Canada will take ex-families. And uh, the Haddads were one of the families that ended up going to Canada where they tried to start their new life. Um and the only life that they knew was the life of being chocolatiers. So what does a family do when they come to a new country? They don't know the language. They no longer have a vocation. They can't even start work because of all the paperwork and all the rigmarole that goes that has to happen so that they can stay in the country. All right, we're going to try Jonathan again. Are you there? Are you there, Jonathan? I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Excellent. Great. Ex excellent. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was I was just giving people a little background on the story and and the Haddads, and how during the wars they left, they came to Canada as part of Trudeau, saying they would take thirty thousand families or people into Canada uh, who had to leave Syria because of the wars. The Haddads were one of them, one of those families, but. Just because they will take you doesn't mean it's an easy process to get no, into another all. country. Yeah. And you really, so, sh and it, you show us that. Yeah, and, and you know, that's the thing. It, it was a, such a, you know, interesting time in Canada when our prime minister made that uh, campaign promise, really, to bring in 25,000 and then up to 50,000 refugees by the end of the year. Uh, and he had a matter of months basically to accomplish this. So Canadians across the country were really waiting to see how that would fold, unfold. And, you know, if you are a private sponsor of a refugee, you don't know who you're going to get. You know, you don't know who's going to be coming. And, you, and the Canadians that welcome people with open arms. It was just such an inspirational moment to see what happens when we are open to people and treat them like neighbors, even if they're from the other side of the world. You know, how did you find out about the Haddad family? You know, it was something that was covered uh, locally. You know, the local news found the you know, very first family that was coming to Nova Scotia, and they said, we're going to do a monthly coverage and check in. And I, I talked to the journalist, and she was looking for, you know, a really difficult story of, you know, people coming in the middle of the winter from a desert climate, and it, it's being just a, a hard life. 
to see what was going to happen. And in the end, it turned out to be this really lovely, inspirational story. Uh, and so it was something I was following very closely. And, you know, I think a lot of people are really proud to see Nova Scotians stepping up to help people in this terrible civil war that's still going on. And so I immediately, you know, saw the universality in the story. And I thought, hey, this would be a really great story. This is what I want to know uh, and share about the Nova Scotian people to the world. Well, and how did you reach out to the family directly? How did you make contact? And I have to imagine that there may have been some trepidation on the part of the Haddads to have their story told, uh, even though it's in a narrative film uh, versus a documentary. Of course. You know, my training and background comes from the documentary realm. Mm -hmm. So I was very much going into this as like, oh, it could be a documentary. But I, I love seeing documentaries that unfold in real time, that the filmmaker is with the subjects and we see what's happening. So when I had suggested, oh, it could be a, a narrative film, I think the family really actually liked this because it could be not just their story, but it could be so many other people's stories, right? Mm -hmm. There are thousands, uh, millions of people who are displaced, refugees who have started a new home, moved to a different country. And so much of that is embodied in this film. And I think it, it became stronger because we did something that was narrative, actually. Mm -hmm. Well, something that you do um, that I really, uh, really love and so appreciate is that as we're focusing on the Haddads, you're focusing on not just the immigration issue, but those universal issues that every family deals with. The son does not want to follow in dad's footsteps. He wants to do something else. Mom want, is trying to wear the pants in the family. Mom and dad aren't getting along because dad wants to be the breadwinner. He can't get a job. There's problems with paperwork. Um, the daughter still hasn't been able to come over uh, due to paperwork issues. You really focus on the human element of the family dynamic so that we become very invested in each of these individuals, as well as the Haddad sponsor, Frank, beautifully played by Mark Camacho. I mean, that was very intentional, because as a storyteller, I, I truly believe that a really well story can change the world. It can change somebody's perspective, and I've seen that firsthand um, out on the road, getting to see the reaction to this film. And telling a story about a refugee, is it's tricky, especially because we need more empathy from people who have not been in that situation, right? And so it was really important that we show the humanity, the, the, the father-son relationship, the family dynamics that we all experience. So people realize that people are people. You know, underneath our skin, it's still blood and bones, no matter where you're from, right? And that was just so important to tell a story that people could connect to, um, no matter what their background was from. Oh, I because I think as I'm watching it, I'm thinking everybody can relate to this. The son wants Tariq wants to go and do what he wants. He's going behind dad's back. You know this is going to blow up in his face. How many of us have been there, done that? Um, everyone. Everyone. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. I, you know how closely did you work with the family in the making of this film? Yeah, that was. Great question. You know, and that was one of the joys of making this film is that I still got to play the documentarian, right? I still got to go into the community, get to know the family. We even filmed a short documentary about the father, uh, who's the chocolatier, and his sponsor, Frank, going on their first camping trip in the wilderness. So I really wanted to get close to the community, close to the family, and make sure that it was something that when we walked away from this years later, it felt very authentic, and it felt emotionally resonant. And that is the goal as a storyteller, right? That you, you give something that is going to be not only resonant to the people you create the story about, but also people who have lived similar experiences. So they were very much involved. They're actually extras in some of the scenes on set, you know, the real family. So we wanted to make sure we brought them close to the production. And, you know, the Arab stars who are in our film are people that they grew up watching. Just imagine, like, you know, wow. Tom Hanks and, you know, uh, another you know, celebrity are playing your, your parents. And, and that's who we kind of got for the family. So they were so excited to be there on set and experience that together. 
Well, one of the best casting uh, castings that you have is the legendary Hatem Ali. He's primarily known as a director, uh, but you bring him yeah, in to play yeah. Esam, the dad, uh, and the patriarch of the family. I mean, he just captures your heart. You feel his parental angst. You feel his parental pride. You feel the joy when he makes chocolate in the kitchen because that's all he knows how to do. And even if it goes nowhere, he's still going to make chocolate in the kitchen. Uh, and you really feel for this man. Um, he it just, he is the embodiment of the family patriarch. And you can really relate to him in this film. And how did you get him to do this film? Because he did, you know, he was known as an acclaimed director. You know, Hatem was uh, very lucky. Uh, you know, it was one of those lucky situations where, you know, Canada and Germany were the two major countries that opened their arms to Syrians. So mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a production that was shot in Montreal, and we happened to have lots and lots of great Syrian creators who came to Montreal to start a new life. So Hatem had only been in Montreal for a year. Uh, the girl who plays the daughter, she'd only been there for six months. Wow. Um, and so this was all their very first, North American production. And when we found out that Hatem was in Montreal, uh, and, you know, primarily he started as an actor, but it's really a director. And mm -hmm. we, we thought, well, would he return to acting? This is perfect for this role. So I was so honored that he you know, accepted our, our call to return to acting. And, you know, unfortunately he passed, uh, but just over a, you know, a year after we shot the film and mm. Um, I was really lucky to have another acclaimed director like him on set so we could work together and make sure that it was something really special. But you know, his soul just pours out in the film. I don't, I don't think anybody yeah. can watch this and not be affected by his performance. Oh, I completely agree. But now it's very interesting because this is your first narrative feature. And in many respects, a narrative, while the basic filmmaking tools, the toolbox is still the same, be it documentary or narrative, there is a great, there's a great stumbling block oftentimes when you make a leap into narrative. How beneficial, how collaborative was it for you work, having Hatem there to work with him and even maybe pick his brain a little about narrative directing? Well, you know, one thing that's very true to the character in the film is uh, Hatem didn't speak a word of English. So, you know, your main actor really is somebody who you're using Google Translate to communicate with on set. Uh, you know, we had a translator, but quickly we realized that his Arabic skills were not good uh -oh. enough to work uh, at the speed we needed on set. So, so much of our communication was through our eyes and just sharing the common goal that we knew why we were there. We knew the importance of the story. We knew why it was had to be told. And I think... You know, he was so respectful. You know, you think, oh, two directors on set, how's that going to go, right? But he was so, so direct, uh, you know, really, really respectful about that. And, and there were moments where I definitely, you know, I needed to get another opinion. And so I'd ask him through the other, you know, cast members who spoke Arabic, you know, hey, does this feel authentic? You know, do we need to try this another way? And having that, like, access to somebody who's so accomplished, it's just, you know, not only is it a great experience, for me, it just made the film even stronger. But now you bring up a very, very interesting point with this film, the language barriers. Now, I have long been a believer and proponent of the fact that film, that cinema translates, I mean, it crosses all language barriers. You don't need to speak somebody's native tongue in order to understand cinematically what they're saying what a film is saying. Um, but I have to wonder, when you're in production, Jonathan, how challenging was this? Because I'm assuming that you also had crew, be being in Canada, in Nova Scotia, you've got crew that are speaking French. Obviously, you're sp speaking English. We have plenty of people speaking Arabic. Um, it was your own little United Nations up there. So did this kind yeah. of, did this hinder production at all? Um, did that present any hurdles you had not anticipated? 
you know, we, we, when we realized we'd have three languages on set and not one person spoke the same language, we were really, uh, you know, we're in for a bit of a, a production surprise. You know, we had a few moments where people like showed up at the wrong place or, you know, the wrong time. And it's the normal miscommunication you have when you're working in, you know, a crew that speaks French, a cast that speaks Arabic and a director and his team who speaks English. Um, of course, you're going to have some issues. But once we got our stride, we were we were like a little United Nations. We were like a little family. And most of the filming, two weeks of the filming, took place in one location, a 17-room Victorian mansion. We all had our own little spot. Uh, we shared food and lunches, and we just really bonded. And we just realized that, you know, like the message of the film, you do not need to know someone else's language to understand the humanity of another right. human being. And, uh, you know, it's something, an experience I will, you know, take to my grave. It was, it was in- incredible. You know, talk to me about the, the physical production of this. Working with your cinematographer, um, Bunab uh, Baloo, because I noticed, like, one of the key location spots is the eventual little, you know, built-up lemonade stand turned into, like, a shack a small shack on the cur on a street corner, on the curb where Isam could make his chocolates and sell them to people. That was not a large facility. Similarly, the kitchen in which you were shooting within the main house was not large. It looked like a lot of cramped spaces here. Plus, you're shooting in winter. Um, logistically, was this presenting a problem? Or did, was, did you factor this in as you were doing your shot listing or your storyboarding with your DP? You know, Ben Wabalia was a great inspiration for me to embrace the Steadicam, right? So this film is 90% on Steadicam. It, mm-hmm. it becomes a character in the film itself. For the blocking, the way we use it to, you know, introduce and take out people in scenes and, and focus the audience's attention. And when you're working in a really tight space, it can be such an impressive tool to be able to move around and move quickly. So I, I give the credit to him. But, uh, you know, there's always that balance if you want to build something and work in a studio versus being on location. Um, and I really wanted this whole story is about authenticity. It's about mm-hmm. feeling and being in something that is rooted in, in reality. And we, we just wanted to make sure that even if we were going to work in tight quarters, it would still be real, right? So we, we just accepted the challenges of having to have very creative blocking. Our Steadicam operator was, you know, this super tall guy, and he was like a ballerina dancing around everybody, not trying wow. to you know, fall over. So. Be- because it looks beautiful. The film, it, it visually, has it's very appealing. It looks beautiful. And you really navigate. But what it also does with these close quarters it really conveys, it metaphorically speaks, to the closeness of, of the family. Uh, and as they're pu- coming together or being forced together with Tariq and Isom butting heads, um, you really feel that because of this close proximity. And I really appreciated the way that you did that. Thank you. And, and you know, I think that's what, filmmaking is in 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 its essence is how does the camera how do your actors how does your story all come together in like the best combination you know um you know you may forego like really flashy visuals or whatever but if, if the storytelling style and the camera style is bringing you closer to the story uh, that's that's what i'm you know that's the goal i've set out to accomplish and i'm glad you picked up on that yeah you know how challenging was the editing process on this one jonathan <laughs> I mean, I think any editing process will drive a drive a director crazy, right? Because you, you just want to make it better and better. Uh, and at some point, you just have to let go. But, um, you know, it's just when you're working on a film that is so positive and just has such a hopeful message, it's just something you want to spend your time in. So, you know, we did the editing in the beginning of the pandemic. So there was not much else to do but watch this lovely footage and you know, figure out the best way to put it together. Well, now, you know, the big question, though, were you guys really making chocolate on set? Yes. <laughs> yes, we were. I have an amazing production designer who, when I said we're going to make a film about chocolate, he went out 
he got the exact same tempering wheel, which is the wheel that you heat up the chocolate uh-huh. to start making before you put it in the molds. He brought it home over Christmas break, and he learned how to make chocolate himself. So not only are all the chocolates in the film, a lot of them are from the actual company, but we had a lot of other production chocolate that was made with the same molds by our, our you know production designer who took on the task to really figure oh, out what it is like to make chocolate himself. Wow. So um, how much of the product made it to the camera before people were sticking their fingers in? To eat it while it was you know, while it was being made. You know that you never want to be the person between a film crew and food. That's right. <laughs> not the person between film crew and chocolate, uh, especially when they look at it. So I I was the one who said, "Hey guys, you know you, you can't you can't eat it." And I, I promise you, there will be a moment where it will happen. Trust me. And so our very last day with the chocolate, you know, I we cut. We were like wrapping up the camera. I said, "Okay, guys." Go for it. And within five minutes, every piece of chocolate that you could see was gone. (laughs) I'm surprised you didn't have a mutiny when you said, no, guys, you got to wait. We did. You know, I've caught a few people sneaking chocolate during production. (laughs) Well, I have to tell you, your wonderful distributor, Level 33, Andreas, was such a sweetheart. He sent me some of the piece by chocolate chocolate. Oh, and it is delicious. I, I I love. I particularly like the chocolate with blueberry. Uh, you know, I tried four different ones. I I that one is a big favorite. But uh, yeah, it. I can just imagine that poor crew. You are such a taskmaster, Jonathan. God, <laughs> you know, was there a big learning curve for you as a filmmaker? Coming out, because you've got a lot of shorts under your belt, you come out of doc, um, the doc world. Was there a learning curve for you stepping into narrative? Of course. I I can't imagine anybody who could not answer that question honestly. I mean, (laughs) when when anybody does anything new, there's always a bit of a learning curve. But it was an incredibly rewarding production to do my first narrative feature on because you know, you spend years of your lives as a filmmaker with projects. This is year five of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, so you better really love what you're doing if you're going to spend five years of life with it. And I truly believe in the, in the message, you know, that this is all about loving thy neighbor no matter where you come from, right? And that's that's what I hope people take away from the film. And what better production to start with than something that you can really get behind, you know, and, and love fully. Mm-hmm. Well, does this mean we will see you making more narratives now? I think so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I have more in the works, so, you know, it's not an easy uh, thing to get off the ground, but when you do, it's so exciting to be able to share it with everybody. Wow. Well, you know, I've got one last question for you, Jonathan. Before I let you go, I'm I'm really curious about what you as a filmmaker and storyteller, what did you learn about yourself making Peace by Chocolate? Because this is such a special film. It is so universal, but it's also a very personal film. So I'm curious what you learned about yourself as a filmmaker. You know, I think I think we all have our own biases and judgment of people. And, you know, I, I try to be as open-minded as I can. Uh, in life in general, but I think when you when you go through the experience of meeting people who have gone through such terrible things, such you know, unexplainable, and you see what's happening in Ukraine, and unfortunately, yeah. the displacement and the way the world is, it will continue to happen. But when you get to, you know, try to put yourself in someone else's shoes, I just think you have so much more understanding and respect that we are all the same, that we're all human beings that we all have the same wants and desires. And, uh, you know, these, these boundaries that we put up, it's just not, it's not real, you know. And so it just, like, reconfirmed that and, and made that even stronger. And I, I think I will always remember the experience of getting to meet, you know, people who have just, you know, had to pick up and move their entire lives and start over and just seeing the strength in, in their stories and when they did that. Wow. And everybody can now see Peace by Chocolate. It is out. Finally. I know. It's amazing. It is It is everywhere. 
I know it's on it's, it's yeah. on VOD. It's available digitally. Um, yeah, on all the on all the usual suspect platforms too. On all the usual suspects. So, please, uh, if you want a film that is uplifting and you know brings you a little bit of hope and humanity, go check it out. And of course, it is Peace P E A C E by Chocolate. That's uh, yeah. and I mean. And I just love—I love the title. I love—I love what you did with the title. Uh, that's fabulous. So, are you working on anything else right now, or just enjoying this being out in the world? I am. I've got uh, three projects in development right now, all with the common thread of you know understanding one another even better. And uh, I can't wait to get those up too for people to watch. Well, when you do, I sincerely hope you'll come back on the show so we can talk about those. I'd love to. This was such a lovely conversation. Oh, uh, just a joy, Jonathan, a joy. And, you know, if anybody wants, wants you to do another film about chocolate, please say yes, because you do them really okay. well. <laughs> yeah. <All right>. Jonathan, <laughs> thank you so much, and hopefully we will speak sooner rather than later. I hope so. I really appreciate the time and, and taking a chance to watch and talk about the film. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. And that was Jonathan Kaiser, the director, editor uh, of Peace by Chocolate. Well, co-editor. And now, now we're going to shift gears from Syrians immigrating into Canada to Mongolians making our way in the in the 21st century with Robert Lieberman. Hi, Robert. Welcome. Hi. How are you? I'm very excited to be speaking with you about Echoes of the Empire Beyond Genghis Khan. Well, I'm delighted to be here. I love this documentary. I love this documentary. Uh, can, I record, can I record you some? Saying that, <laughs> of course. Well, we're going out live now, so yes, everybody, and then we'll be up as a podcast later on uh, this week. But I love this film. I'm I'm a Genghis Khan geek anyway. I've always been fascinated yeah. by Genghis Khan, uh, what he did uh, that even surpassed what Alexander the Great did, because Khan his empire sustained long after he was dead long after he had passed yes. unlike alexander the great um so i've always been fascinated with what he did and his approach and so much and the fact that you break down the history for us in this film in this documentary um with I love the animation. I love the watercolor animation. It's fabulous. The map. Yeah, I know, it's beautifully done. Oh. Yeah, this was all done. You know, I'd like to take full credit for uh, the film, but it was done in our studio. I worked very closely with uh, Photosynthesis Productions, and it was Deb Horde and David Cossack and Norm, the sound guy, and animators. And so I do the shooting. I'm, the, I'm essentially the raconteur, the flaneur. <laughs> I go around and find all the neat stuff, and they're stuck with the real hard work. Well, their hard work paid off because oh, yeah. it's beautiful. Uh, just absolutely. Yeah, I've heard it's stunning. I, yeah, we just showed it uh, in, in Washington. We had big audiences in Washington, D.C., and now we, we're in, I'm in L.A., but heading back we, the weekend, we had nice audiences, too. And on the big screen, it's pretty spectacular yeah i would love to see this um, on the big screen i saw it on, on my 55 inch tv that's not big enough well if you run to lemley's in san monica you can still <laughs> see it through thursday and then we go digitally tomorrow the, yes indeed you do um i mean this is this is truly one of my favorite documentaries of the year i can tell you that right now wow um what drew you to genghis khan is not typically who you wake up one morning and say, I'm going to do a documentary on Mongolia, on Genghis Khan, and on the Mongols today. That's not really breakfast conversation 
You might think of that in the shower, maybe. But, you know, where did this idea arise for you? What was the germ of this? Well, I've always been drawn to kind of exotic places, distance. I did a film with the same same studio. Uh, they call it Myanmar with Aung San Suu Kyi, mm-hmm. who had just, you know, before, she, while she was still in house arrest, and then she got released. By the way, she's back in in house or in actually in jail, and you know it's been horrible. I followed. I have followed her journey for years. Um, so yes. Well, I know her. <laughs> oh my <laughs> well, God! Lucky you. And, uh, so then, after that, I did uh, I did Encore Awakens, uh, set in Cambodia, and this is essentially our Asian trilogy, though Mongols. Think, don't think of themselves as Asian. Right. Certain, their language is not. It's an Altai, you know, sort of Turkic language. And what we did is, uh, or tried to do, is weave in the history with the present day, you know, the mentality of mm-hmm. M- Mongols today and, and as they view their past. And, you know, I'm a novelist, actually, and I wanted to give the viewer a novelist's eye view so, you know, this is not like all my films lately, the last this trilogy, uh, they're not character driven. But in fact, there is a character and the character is the country, mm-hmm. whether it's Burma, Myanmar, whether it's uh, Cambodia or now Mongolia. I want, you know, I like to go to places that you may not get a chance to go to. And I want to take you on a trip, though it's not a travel log. It covers everything, all aspects of the country. And by the way, one of our stars is Jack Weatherford, who wrote the New York Times bestseller, I don't know how many million books it sold, uh, called Genghis Khan, The Making of the Modern World. And just a fabulous, he's a fabulous storyteller. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, the... And this is one of the great things about this documentary, Robert, is that so often you just have talk. A lot of filmmakers will just have talking heads there. Right. That yes, they're imparting information and facts and history, but there's no life to it. Yeah. Um, Jack brings life into everything he says. Yeah. And the way you have He's structured the ultimate storyteller. Uh, yeah. You know, and the way you have structured this, we feel the life we feel the history of the past it, it feels like a living history thanks in large part to those beautiful watercolor drawings that are animated um yeah these sort of ink flows yes, yes. Gorgeous. Uh, and then we had uh, an artist who, who did the renderings of genghis khan who's known as chinggis khan in mongolia and his life is a very strange life where he's Uh, essentially an orphan you know hungry and his rise to power well one of the great things and i don't think and very few people number one i know they don't teach it they didn't teach it in school when i was there and i went digging on my own to find it out because i was so fascinated with the man um was that he really is the first one that put women up on a pedestal and gave them such great value. He invoked the first laws that protected What's women. What's very interesting is that, as you discovered maybe in the story, uh, the women are more educated than the yes. men. What, what happens is, you know, the, the, the boys have got to take care of the herds, at least with the nomads. And the girls, I mean, what are you going to do with a girl? Oh, Okay, send her to school. Send her to school. And the girls end up getting higher education. And ultimately, uh, it's very tough for them to find a, comp, you know, a mate that they can talk to. Yeah. So they're educated, and, and, and their husbands are not quite. Yeah, I find that really interesting. But the fact that, you know, that really goes all the way back. Yes. To, to and, Genghis uh, Khan and Genghis what he, Khan, how he saw you know, women. promoted religious freedom. He laid down laws, including the fact that you could not kill diplomats, which were regularly killed if mm-hmm. you didn't like the country they came from. Um, I mean, he was brutal. No, there's no doubt about it. But he he uh, he did provide law, 
And, you know, that empire went all the way to the doorsteps of Vienna, yep. up to Baghdad. It included Russia and went through India. I mean, it's phenomenal in terms oh, of size. It, it was and even, he even It even included, believe it or not, Afghanistan, which nobody else could conquer or colonize, as we discovered. Um, but, you know, it's more than history. It's By the way, you know, I had a real surprise when I went to Mongolia and started filming. And that is that they're highly musical. And the, by the way, the soundtrack is all Mongolian mu- music, including the rock band The Who, which people, they're all of, you know doing tours around the United States and Australia and Europe. But uh, it's all their music. And I discovered they have world-class ballet and world-class wow. opera. And I mean, this is, you know, I know a bit about opera, and then my wife is a ballet dancer, teacher, and this stuff was great. I was I filmed an enormous amount. Of course, I couldn't make a ballet movie or an opera movie, so we fit it in. But uh, I just had a blast. Uh, by the way, this is a gift of the Russians. I was going to say that is, you know, once they became, you know, enveloped by the part Soviet, of the Soviet Union. part of the Soviet Union. Yeah, it's the culture, the arts is what they took away. Once, right, but also the Russians killed 20,000 llamas. But they, you know, they killed a lot of llamas, but gave them ballet and opera. I don't know. You know, it, 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 it's a toss-up here. It's a toss-up. Yeah. <laughs> but what they have done with that cultural influence yeah. is just stunning. Stunning. But then when and the you... soundtrack is all just beautiful, uh, you know. So, you know, sometimes elements come together in a film and, and, you know, that everything seems to work. Uh, Audiences have been really excited and the reviews are are tremendous. So, so far, so good. You never know. You do a movie and you just never know. You never know. know. Well, you know, something that you do so well here, and I'm curious how you developed your through line, uh, because you take us back in history. We learn about Genghis Khan. You know, after we've already met and seen present-day Mongolia. Yeah. And you take us back and forth, and we get to see the influence from the past, how it impacts the present, and also how some aspects of the present are resistant to the 21st century, and also yeah. how the 21st century has now adversely impacted Mongolia with pollution, with coal, with the brown coal, um, which is the dirtiest kind of coal there is, making air untenable unless you are nomads and you're out in the steppe regions and then up into the mountains. Uh, and you also now here's something really interesting, Debbie. Um, this is the land of the blue sky. It has, you know, lots of clear days, and also the wind never stops as you discover in the film on the step. Mm-hmm. So that's just a natural for guess what? Renewables. Mm-hmm. For wind energy, yep. Yeah. I'm a scientist, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Um, I teach physics at Cornell. And uh, so I'm always looking at sort of the engineering aspects of a country. And so they need to make this transition. And, to you, and you bring, and there is some beautiful imagery with, you know, Windmills with the wind energy yep. starting to come into place. But it's, you know, we really get a great sense of the quandary that so many of the people are in as they're kind of betwixt and between. Yeah. You know, they're still in the past. And it's tough on the herders. Very difficult. Who, who have lost herds and moved into the cities and trying to make that transition. But this is a worldwide problem I've seen all over the developing world where people are forced or move into the cities because of the glitter because of better opportunities because of whatever reason and uh, it it doesn't necessarily work well by the way you know people shouldn't buy mongolian cashmere they should buy mongolian wool sheep wool camel yak but you know you need to know or your listeners certainly should know that, you know, when sheep eat, they just cut off the grass. They bite it off. When goats eat, they rip out everything. Mm-hmm. 
and the cashmere, which all ends up in mostly in China for processing and, and manufacture for sweaters and scarves, uh, that comes from these goats. And the goats multiply like crazy. Mm-hmm. And so there's this shift caused by both financial reasons, because it's very profitable, more profitable than sheep wool, mm-hmm. and also, the, you know, they're easy to breed. So uh, that's the unfortunate thing with, with cashmere. So, you know, the temptation is to go to Land's End and buy cashmere, but uh, I buy wool of any kind, but not, <laughs> <laughs> not cashmere. You know, one, how did you even go about approaching this when you decided you wanted to make this film? Uh, gaining access because you speak with uh, not just experts, but you speak with a lot of them, a lot of Mongolian people. Uh, hundreds I interviewed. Uh, yeah. It's like, how do you even start from a filmmaking well, it's standpoint? it's the same thing I've done in every country. Uh, you know, I, I, I've learned to hit the ground running. So you do your research. And then you go, well, I had the advantage of being at Cornell, and we've had Cornell graduates who've gone back to Ulaanbaatar, you mm-hmm. know, Mongolia's capital city. And so they helped. And, you know, one person leads to 100. And so once you're on a roll, people bring you people, and they say, oh, you should definitely go here, or you should definitely interview this person, or make sure your trip includes X. And so, you know, I never – what's – I don't actually go with, you know, an idea of what the film will be like. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in other words, you're discovering with me, it, you know, it's an art form. I, so it's a, it's a trip of discovery without being a travelogue. I want to take you into the country. I want to take you into the minds of the people. This is what we've done in Myanmar. This is what we've done in Cambodia. This is the same thing where I'm just an infinitely curious person. And I, you know, people also, I do all my own shooting. I, I started that. I used to work with BBC crews, you know, around the world. I did a film in 1985 and, and during the famine in Ethiopia, I've done a comedy, but I've always worked with crews and in Myanmar, you weren't allowed to. So I'm a photographer, so I shifted to shooting myself, lighting where necessary, but I like to use available light and taking sound and making sandwiches and coffee. (laughs) And I get these very intimate discussions you'll see in all three films where people really open up and they lose track of the camera. The camera's not large. I try to use a small 4K camera and... You know, I've always found also when you turn the camera off, you get the best stuff. Well, I tell them I'm turning the camera off and I let it roll. And you let it roll. That's when the good stuff comes. Always, always. Always. Yeah, when when we hang up, all the good stuff is going to (laughs) come. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But, you know, I see the ease that these people have around you. Uh, Some of the elderly people. Uh, yeah. the one woman doing the, uh, doing the throat singing is a long song, yeah. long song. And I love what we learn about that and how the long song, it is in tandem with nature. Yes. It's in fact, they go into caves. They, they imitate animals. They, yes, they, it is, it is a song of nature. The, it's called long song because the vowels are elongated. Mm-hmm. It's very stretched out. Um, yeah, the music, you know, I, I was blown away by it. Absolutely. I mean, just stunning. When did you, how much footage did you amass before you sat down and said, okay, I've got to start editing this. I've got to put this into something. Well, I, I learned some hard lessons. Uh, and when I did the Myanmar movie, they call it Myanmar, I came back ultimately with 140 hours. Uh-oh. And David, my uh, editor, said, oh, no, not more. I, you know, I had gone back repeatedly. Well, the truth is that I didn't know what we needed, and I was shooting too wild. And then every time I went back, it got narrower and narrower. And then when I did, it took four years to make that film. And then I did uh, Encore Awakens. And that was about three years with editing. 
And this was much faster. We did it in a little over two years because now I sort of know what works, what does. You know, the opening of the movie, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm on the ground, and there are this mass of horses coming over a bridge. And they're beautiful. And I got all the way down at hoof level, hoping that the guys in the back weren't going to trample me. But I knew I had a great shot. And they're coming at me, but fortunately, they, they sort of forked around me on either side. It was like a stream. But, you know, he, horses are smarter than one realizes, especially when it comes to stepping on people. <laughs> but, I, you know, you get smarter and wiser. I did a comedy called Green Lights. Uh, so I've done fiction. I'm working on a on an animated film in France uh, with Didier Brunner, five-time Academy Award winner, based on a, a novel of mine. I'm doing the screenplay and working with him, and the novel's called The Nazis, My Father and Me. And uh, you get, you know, there's nothing like experience and age to help, I think. It, you know, you have a worldview that's... Uh, I've been everywhere around the world except Antarctica, New Zealand, and Australia. Still have to go there. There's still time. There's still time, Robert. There's still time. I don't know. Time is running out, but I'm trying to squeeze in as much, you know, before I go to puppy heaven. Uh, And, you know, it's it's ironic because I know as I'm driving to the studio today, there's a news story that came out today that Mm. um, scientists have just now found that plastics are turning up in the, uh, snow and uh, snow and ice analysis from Antarctica. Really, um, which is a sad commentary uh, that oh, yeah. the one last pure, quote unquote, pure, pristine area now plastics have we have now polluted that. Uh, well, how do you get away from plastic? I don't know. You know, you go buy shampoo, buy a ga- half gallon of milk, buy a tube of toothpaste. I mean, this is a corporate problem, yeah. you know, and people really should be pushing back, you know, using, you know, degradable containers, using, you know, cardboard instead of plastic. No, you don't get me on this rant. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds kind of like rants I've been on, Robert. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, you know, working with, you know, how difficult was it finding where to put in your interview subjects and to fa- working with David and your editor, David Cossack, and to find the pace and the beats of this film? Because you have That's it- the magic of having good editors. It was Deb also, Deborah Horde. Uh, it's the, ma- yeah, they bring the magic and... Uh, uh, yeah, how do you do it? Yeah, I don't know. It, it's a, a kind. David can keep in his mind, and Deb also. Uh, you know, a hundred hours. I, I, I don't. I can't do that. I only have two brain cells, and one usually <laughs> isn't working. <laughs> but you know, I, yes, it's a mystery how it comes together, and you keep looking at it. And we just did the broadcast version, a fifty-minute version for television, um, which is far down the road. But right now we're focused on digital, you know, uh, sure. the theatrical the... Is, is sort of winding down. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, you know, I'm a novelist. I've just finished a 700-page novel. Wow. And I don't understand the process. It's almost like, you know, from God's mouth to my ear or something. I don't, you know, if you're like a bird, if you ask yourself, while you're flying, you're going to fall out of the air. So don't ask. Just fly. Well, because I have to say, I think the editing is exceptional. The pacing oh, yeah. is very well done. You never have a glut of too many, you know, talking heads. Or you all, it's very well balanced so that we get context. We get visual context to the information that we are being given. Uh, and I really... The biggest sin is to bore an audience, whether it's a novel or it's a film, right? You don't want to bore the audience. You don't, and you definitely... You've got to grab them by the collar and hang on. Well, and so you do that here with the great editing, but all with interesting material. 
Uh, and the fact that there are probably 20 million males out there with DNA that goes directly to Genghis Khan is just amazing. Well, it may not be Genghis Khan. It may it be, be somebody, somebody in his entourage. In his Who entourage. knows which lines died out. So but it, that's it, really it, interesting that they've been able to pinpoint this. But you may have some Mongo blood. <laughs> if I see you riding a horse, I know. Oh, oh Backwards. D- well, <laughs> no, that'll never happen. Uh, but... You know, when it comes to pacing, it's the same problem. I, you know, I, my novels, I have a novel called Baby, Boys of Truxton. All of them are the same. It's the same identical problem. You want to hook the audience and take them for the ride. Mm-hmm. That's the secret of, you know, I've, I, I, while I'm here in L.A., I've been looking at a lot of movies, you know, a lot of indie movies also, and, and they're boring because they, they're not considering their audience. This is you know, this you, you you have hit the nail on the head. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I I have because I get brought in as a consultant to first time filmmakers sometimes, or, or they have me look at you know early versions, and I will yeah. always ask some of them, "Who is your target audience?" And I get an and I have gotten this more than once. My mother. No, <laughs> everyone. Say like, no, 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 no. Who is your target audience? Well, I want everyone to see it. Well, yes, we all want everyone to see it. But who is going to who are going to be the first people that are you think are going to come to see this film? I don't know. Yeah. And this is a problem. Just because yeah, you, you, you you can yeah. make a film, just because you can take your phone and make a film, it doesn't mean you should. You need to be purposeful in what you do. Well, you know what? It's the same. I, I, I'll come back to the same analogy. Every, you know, people got word processors, you know. Everyone's got Microsoft Word, and they think they can write a novel. It's the same thing. So you can have a camera and Final Cut and, you know, make a movie. But that's right. But it's, it's more than that. You know, the art. Yeah. Yeah, and this... Echoes of the Empire, truly there is art here, Robert, because you give us beautiful visuals uh, that capture the past and the present. I mean, when we meet some of these people in their huts, in their nomadic huts, that now are, instead of being broken down, they're being made more semi-permanent. The interiors... And I've seen this before, like in the Eagle Huntress documentary and a couple other things that go out into the steppes in in Mongol in that area. It is the color inside, the beauty, the the, the craftsmanship of the fabrics, Mm. even the clothing that they wear, the traditional clothing. Um, there's, There's color, there's beauty, there's life, there's vibrancy then you bring that out also in nature and what we're seeing as you're traveling. We see the snow-covered mountains. We see the green steps. We see the winding river. Um, And then we see the city perspective. We see the gleaming statue of, of Genghis Khan. We see the cleanliness within the cities. We see the, the fringe the fringe side of caught between nomadic life and city life. But you give us something visually beautiful, visually interesting. You break this up with wonderful information and and knowledgeable people giving us facts. You put this all together and then put, add in some, the beautiful, you know, watercolor, ink, water and ink, animation that this is just a perfect package Robert a perfect package that I'm flattered that people will once you you watch the opening frame of this film you cannot turn it off you have to keep watching the first five minutes of of, yeah just a wonderful opening that's Deborah who designed designed Ah, that 
She did an amazing, yeah. and no, amazing There's no job. talking. It's just music, right? That's and it. Horses coming at you. and Yeah. It's horses. And everybody now likes horses. Everybody's been watching Yellowstone for four seasons uh, now. Now they, I mean, they're used to what Taylor Sheridan gives with all of these, you know, horses on, you know, up in Montana running through the hills and, and the fields. And so now people are starting to get into this whole idea of nature and horses and running free or being herded in mass. And so, you know, if you like Yellowstone and you like to see that and trying to save that way, the Old West way of life, that's essentially what people are, they will glean that from Echoes of the Empire as well. So that's a whole other audience that I think would love this documentary. And it's because it opens with the horses and the way you shot them. Because it's stunning. It is absolutely mm. stunning. Uh, I was actually doing a double take. I mean, is it live or is it Memorex? Because it's so beautiful. <laughs> the air is so clean. And, and this was all shot in 4K. Uh, I mean, yeah. you you didn't even take it up to 6 or 8K. You just shot in 4K. That's right. I mean, just gorgeous. Gorgeous, Robert. So before I let you go, since we're all out of time, I've got, I've got to ask you, yeah. you know, what did you take away from making Echoes of the Empire beyond Genghis Khan? What did you learn as a filmmaker about yourself, something that well, you will take forward now. <laughs> you know what I learned is that this was the toughest physical film that I've ever done because you're there are no roads except for a couple main roads and you're just beaten to hell. Uh, that's what. <laughs> uh, this was hard. I was sleeping in a tent below the snow line, sleeping with families of three generations. Not a lot of privacy. But uh, I took away the warmth of these people. You, if, when you approach a girl, which is a yurt, uh, you, the first thing you say is hold the dogs, and they hold the dog, and then you're invited in, and you're welcome, and they'll feed you, and you can sleep there. And uh, it, it's a, an extraordinary experience, and I hope maybe your listeners can have a sense of that experience that I had and discovering the music. That was the, the uh, piece de resistance. <laughs> That's your favorite part of the journey that you went on was yeah. the music. Yeah. I can tell just by the, I can oh, yeah. the music I is hear fabulous. the joy. And you'll, you'll hear it for, for 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. The, the soundtrack. Yeah. The soundtrack. It is absolutely beautiful. So now that everybody will be able to see echoes of the empire beyond Genghis Khan starting tomorrow, digitally, and it's out, it's out there in the world. What's next for you? You just finished your 700-page book. Are you moving well, on? I'm still going back, working with an editor now. For the, I started this in 1985. I'm working on the, uh, with Didier Brunner the, uh, in France on the Nazis, My Father and Me. And my dream is to do a musical uh, film. If you have a lot of money, please send it to me. <laughs> Don't I? Hey, if I did, yeah, I, if I did, money, I would. Extra. Yeah. Well, if I didn't have to keep going to the mechanic with my car, maybe I might. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Robert, this has been such a joy talking no, with it's you been my pleasure. about this film. I truly, I do. I sincerely, I love, love this. It's film. going to be on uh, iTunes. It's going to be on Google Play. It's going to be. Everything, Amazon is a little lagging, but they're coming on also. But uh, most of the major, uh, you know, streaming services. Now, will it uh, go on to VOD as well? Yes, because Journeyman Films, which is our distributor in the U.K., we've worked with before, they have even, they do a video on demand. Oh, it's going to be on Vimeo also. And so it's going to be on just about every platform. You know, you can always do a search. You know, well, where it's playing. All I can say is it is one of my favorite document documentaries of the year so far. I love it, and I can't encourage everyone enough to, to see this film. 
and you're my favorite interviewer. Well, thank you so much. How's that? Mutual Admiration Society. Oh, well, Karen would tell you, your publicist would tell you, if I thought the film stunk, I'd tell you. I know. <laughs> Great. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm oh. flattered. I hope I can, I can hear your podcast somehow. Well, after the, if I get to it tonight, this will be out as a podcast on BehindTheLensOnline.net tonight and probably by and on some of the other podcast platforms. And mm. then I think by Wednesday it'll be up on iTunes, uh, Google, uh, and some of the bigger ones. But it should be up on Podbean later tonight, Stitcher, uh, and a few others. But definitely on my site on BehindTheLensOnline.net. 24 I seven. hope people rate it on, on Rotten Tomatoes. That would be nice. Well, the audio doesn't go up on Rotten Tomatoes. If but I get, the people who watch it can... The people who probably. watch it. Yes, they should rate it because it's wonderful. And I hope... Yeah, that, you know, my, my theory is love me, hate me, but mention me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you will come back on the show again in the future, Robert. Next film, The Nazis, My Father, and Me. Well, hurry up and get it made. Hurry well, it's two years more in the making. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a huge project. It's all hand-drawn, you know, It's in France. It's a real art form. Well, I can't wait to see it. Count me in. I, wa I, yep. I want to see that as soon as I can. Oh, Robert, thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And until next time, you have a great, rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thanks, Robert. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Robert Lieberman, director of Echoes of the Empire Beyond Genghis Khan. And folks, I really do love this documentary. It is, it's beautiful to watch. It's very cohesive. Uh, and there are so many interesting things that you find out about history, about the present day, how the past repeats itself in the present. Uh, really, really wonderful, wonderful film. All right, that is all the time we have today. Of course we ran over. We always run over. Um, so next week we will be back. We're going around the world again next week because we're going to be talking about the Quest Nepal and... A Dances with Films festival film. Urzuli. The, uh, Christine Chen will be with, joining us to talk about that. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>